0: After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of these angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and again,
1: We're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark this month to focus on Christmas, the, the Christmas season, hence the, the decorations. My favorite's the lights on the kick drum. Well done, whoever did that. Uh, frankly, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this because in, in our you know, pluralistic, increasingly secular humanist culture that we live in, there are many. False Christmas is around, and so we really need to to take some time to focus, I think, on what the true Christmas is and what it really means. Most people in this country still celebrate Christmas in, in one form or another, but what exactly they're celebrating, what they believe Christmas is, varies greatly. And that's kind of interesting. I find it interesting anyway, because that's not necessarily the case with July 4th. People don't celebrate different things on July 4th. Every American with even the the smallest amount of knowledge of American history knows what July 4th is about. There really aren't any disagreements with that. Not so with Christmas. People's ideas about Christmas vary greatly, and what they celebrate varies greatly, and all of these competing philosophies of Christmas can't all be true any more than one group celebrating July 4th as our independence from Britain, the founding of our country, while another group kind of forgets all that, and they celebrate the flag, not really understanding what it represents, and they go around buying red, white, and blue presents for everybody, because those are the colors of the flag. There's no way both of those things could both be true. The latter group has missed the whole point. One understands what's being celebrated, the other has lost its true meaning, and at this point is really just celebrating the trappings. So there's only one true July 4th, and there's only one true Christmas. It's not unlike how there are false Jesuses around. There are many people who might say they're cool with Jesus, but again, who they say Jesus is varies greatly. And again, all of these Jesuses can't be true. There's only one true Jesus. And of course, those two things are intimately connected. Who you say Jesus is directly influences what you believe Christmas is, which Christmas you celebrate. For example, for someone for whom Jesus is, An afterthought, they're maybe not really sure who he is, don't really care that much. They probably celebrate the material Christmas. More and more people celebrate this Christmas as our society grows more and more secular. We we see this everywhere. I I flipped on the TV recently and saw a show soliciting for a charitable program, and the host said, you know, it's the season of giving after all. You know, that's that's the definition of Christmas. It's the season of giving, and this giving ranges in everything from dropping a couple bucks into the Salvation Army can to buying your loved one a brand new Lexus with a big bow on it. Buy a $60,000 car. It's the season of giving. But most people don't either give to charity or buy new Lexuses. Lexi, whatever the plural that is. For most people, the material Christmas involves Going shopping with the crowds, buying a bunch of stuff so they can gather with their friends and family around the tree with Bing Crosby on and have a a wonderful time uh, opening presents with one another. Which, by the way, my family does that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. The only point is, for for many, that's all Christmas means, opening presents around a tree on the 25th. Maybe they go to a Christmas Eve mass or service, but probably that's more likely because grandma drugged them there or it's just part of the tradition along with Santa Claus. But really, for these people, Christ really doesn't have anything to do ultimately with Christmas. Interestingly, a, a pastor friend of mine who trains pastors in China told me that this is exactly what happens in China. He said, you you go to China at Christmas time, the very definition of a secular country, and he says there's Christmas decorations everywhere. You go in the stores, they're, they're playing white Christmas. Everyone buys gifts for one another. It's It's really kind of crazy. China apparently has imported the material Christmas of the West, really uh, devoid of what exactly it is that they're celebrating. A second and smaller yet very vocal Christmas today is the get-rid-of-Christ Christmas. This is the group of people who are always offended about all things Christmas, and so they're attempting to get rid of every vestige of Christmas from the public space. Christmas trees become holiday trees. Christmas break for schools becomes winter recess. Store clerks say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. But why are these people so offended about Christmas? If Christmas is is just about Santa Claus and giving presents on, on Christmas morning, that wouldn't be any more offensive than buying somebody a birthday present. The reason they're offended is because they know it's not just about Santa. They know the roots of Christmas are distinctly Christian, and so they want to eliminate it. So although it's sad what they're doing, in in my opinion, and I think we should counter it with the Gospel, by the way, not boycotting Starbucks cups or when the store clerk says, Happy Holidays, you say, Merry Christmas, as if that's going to win anybody over. But in one way, I actually respect these people more than those who celebrate the material Christmas, because at least in a very real way, they understand that Christmas ultimately is about Christ, even as they're trying to get rid of him. There's yet another Christmas we regularly find, and we'll call that the sentimental Christmas. Although all these false Christmases are dangerous, I would contend that maybe this is the most dangerous. These are the many people who have a good understanding of what Christmas truly celebrates. They know it's not just about giving gifts. They certainly don't want to get rid of Christ from Christmas. They want to celebrate Him, and they do. So they might go to a Christmas Eve service. They might listen to the Messiah, they might put Jesus as the reason for the season on their Christmas cards. It might seem very religious and pious, but ultimately, all of this is really just kind of sappy sentimentalism. As Brian prayed before service, they have the Christmas spirit in December, but the rest of the year, Christ is clearly not Lord of their lives. Which means that they likely aren't actually saved, even though they think they are. Which is why I said this is probably the most dangerous of the false Christmases. So those are some of the false Christmases. I'm sure we could come up with some more if we wanted to keep going. But let's transition now. Okay, those are some of the false Christmases. So what then is the true Christmas? Like I said at the beginning, the answer to that is completely anchored in our understanding of who the true Jesus is. And to understand that... We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews this morning, and so you know where we're headed, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 1, and then we're going to skip ahead to chapter 16 point to consider how the Old Testament prophets pointed to who the true Messiah truly is. So let's get into this together. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. and His minister is a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. We're going to stop there for now. So this marvelous book just jumps right in by declaring that God spoke in the past through His prophets and the fathers of the faith. And of course, this is a direct reference to Old Testament revelation. God spoke through the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He spoke through His prophets, such as Moses, through whom He gave the law. And of course, later, through men like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. God systematically revealed His progressive, redemptive plan through these men using prophecy, signs, miracles, and most importantly, His written word is recorded in the Old Testament. These were God's divinely inspired spokesmen responsible for delivering and recording His Word. Yet, that Word was incomplete and partial. It was all pointing to something that had yet to be fulfilled. As verse 2 says, in these last days, which by the way, that's a common New Testament term to refer to the period between Christ's first and second coming. So, we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. In these last days, God spoke through His Son God's progressively revealed redemptive plan, his plan to save his, his people, is culminated in his son, Jesus Christ. That's who the prophets were pointing to. And notice this direct contrast between the fathers and the prophets and the son. And this goes a long way in pointing us to the true Christ of the true Christmas, and it, and it helps us kind of sort through the false Jesuses. So this directly refutes Islam who holds Jesus as a prophet on par with Moses, but still only a man. This directly refutes Buddhism, who who gladly accepts Jesus as a Buddha, one of the few great men in history who have reached enlightenment, but ultimately a man like the other Buddhas. This directly refutes secularists or liberal Christians that matter who who are happy to relegate Christ to a a wonderful teacher, maybe the the greatest man ever to live. He provided the perfect example for us to live, but still just a man, a teacher, a prophet. Scripture doesn't let us get away with that though. As the writer of Hebrews says in verse 2, Jesus is said to not simply be another prophet or a great man. He is said to be the Son of God. While Old Testament prophets were channels God communicated His Word through, as John 1 says, Jesus is the Word. He not only speaks for God, but He speaks as God, because Jesus is God. That's the first truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas. Jesus the Son is God. And this truth is made clear in these verses in three ways. First, verse 3, Jesus is said to be the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So Christ was not a godlike man. He is God, and that he's the exact representation of God the Father's nature, as Philippians 2 says. But the, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, said something very similar when he said of the coming Messiah, Isaiah 9 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So in no uncertain terms, the Messiah is prophesied to be God. He's of the same likeness as God the Father because He is God. The Father and the Son are co-equal in nature. Distinct persons, one equal nature. As it says in John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So his physical birth in Bethlehem that we celebrate at Christmas was not the beginning of his existence. He's existed eternally as God the Son, as Micah prophesied in Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the eternal Son of God who's the exact radiance of the Father because He is God. And we have to understand that to understand the true Christmas. Second, Jesus is, is shown to be God by being said to be greater than the angels. Verse 4 says, "...having become as much better than the angels." This might seem like kind of a strange reference at first, but it's very significant because angels are, are powerful creatures, far more powerful than humans. For example, Second Kings 19.35, one angel, one angel wipes out 185,000 soldiers of, of the feared Assyrian army. That's incredibly powerful. In fact, they're so powerful and oppressive, humans are inclined to worship them as, as actually the Apostle John did in Revelation 19 when an angel appeared to him in a vision. And it says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. As that angel said, he's a fellow creature who worships the Creator who is infinitely above and beyond angels and men. We all bow down and worship Him. And Hebrews 1.6 says exactly that. Speaking of the Son, quoting Deuteronomy 32.43, it says, and let the angels of God worship Him. God the Father commands His angels to worship the Son. Think about what that is explicitly saying about the Son. God clearly says in the Ten Commandments, you shall worship no other God but Me. He says in Isaiah 43.11, Before Me there was no God formed, there will be none after Me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides Me. Scripture makes clear over and over, it's blasphemous to worship any other than the one true God of the Bible. There are none besides Him. Yet the angels are commanded to worship the Son by God the Father Himself. Why? Because once again, the Son, Jesus Christ, is that one true God, the second Person of the Trinity, the I Am of the Old Testament. This baby Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas is greater than the angels and worshiped by them and us. Because He's God. Third, Jesus is shown to be God because God the Father explicitly calls Him God. In case we haven't kind of connected the pieces yet or we want to play games just so there's no confusion, God the Father Father, matter-of-factly calls the Son God in verse 8. But of the Son, He says, so of the Son, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That is one of the most explicit statements in Scripture, declaring Jesus to be God. God the Father calls the Son God, whose throne is forever. That is just awesome. So, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the exact representation of God the Father's nature. He's much better than the angels, and God the Father calls Him God, because Jesus is God. That's the first truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas. The second truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas is, Jesus the Son is Creator. Picking up in verse 10 of chapter 1. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So in these verses, the Son, this time called Lord, another title of the God of the Old Testament, is said to have laid the foundation of the universe. Back in verse 2, it says the world was made through the Son. So if I were to ask you what's the, the first verse in the Bible that's referring to Jesus, what would you say? And some might just, well, the Gospels, of course, you know, the book of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. That's a good guess, but we have to go back a little farther than that. Some of you are good Bible students, and you say, oh yeah, Genesis 3, the, the, the first gospel where God says the, the seed of the woman would, would bruise Satan on the head. You're, you're getting warmer, but you're not quite there. The answer is the very first in the verse in the Bible that refers to Jesus is the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of time and this world, Jesus already was. He's the eternal living Word. God the Father spoke the world into existence through the Son, Jesus Christ. As verse 2 of Hebrews says, not only is Christ the Creator, but the power of His Word also presently, currently sustains the universe. 1 Corinthians 1, 15 and 17, For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It's astounding to think about the power Christ has to literally hold the universe together. That's crazy. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. But lastly, as verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 1 say, He will one day destroy the universe and make a new one. This universe is only temporary. One day the Creator will destroy this fallen world and create a new perfect one. Again, the the power involved in that is astounding. But, But notice the contrast these verses make between the temporality of the universe and the eternality of Christ the Son. This world that so many put their hope in will be rolled up like a scroll it says changed like a dirty shirt yet the sun remains unchanged the same yesterday today and forever because the sun is god he's the creator he's the sustainer and he's ultimately the destroyer and recreator of this world because he's god the third truth in understanding the true jesus and the true christmas is jesus the son is man And this is, as I said, we're going to skip to chapter 2 and pick up in verse 6. It says, "...it's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control." That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name, my brothers, in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make prop- propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And this is quite literally what Christmas is about. The incarnation. Which was the act of God the Son taking on a human nature. Two natures, one person. That's not just theology for seminary professors and pastors. That is absolutely essential theology for all of us to understand because we need that to understand the the true meaning of the true Christmas. These verses are remarkable in talking about Christ's Incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation, and the results of the incarnation. And so let's consider those three three things beginning with considering Christ's incarnation. Verses six through eight talk about how the human race was made lower than the angels, yet we've been crowned with glory and honor as we not the angels were made in the image of God. And as the pinnacle of God's creation, we were put in charge of all creation in, in Genesis 1 to, to rule and subdue it. That was God's original intention for man. Yet Hebrews 2.8 says, we do not yet see all things subjected to man. Why? Well, man lost his dominion because of sin. Adam's sin not only severed man's relationship with God, it not only caused physical and spiritual death to the entire human race, but all of creation was cursed as well, which is what Romans 8 talks about, the creation's longing to be set free from its bondage. All of creation was impacted by because of sin. And and most importantly, the human race could never be in the presence of a perfect God. And and so we were doomed to physical death and spiritual death as a just punishment for our sin and our rebellion against our Creator. As God's redemptive plan uh, pointed to the coming one for centuries, Israel could could seek God, as it's saying here, offer temporary sacrifices for temporary atonement for their sins, but there was no eternal atonement. There was no eternal Savior until the perfect time God the Father ordained to send His Son. And, and that's what's at the root of, uh, of Christmas. The incarnation. God coming in human flesh to save fallen sinners. We've talked about how the Son, Jesus, is God. But just as important understanding the true Christmas is to understand that Jesus is truly man. As those verses say, Jesus isn't God-like, and in the same way, He's not just man-like. He didn't just take the form of man, but He became man in every way, with a human nature and a human will, while remaining God with His divine nature and divine will. It is absolutely vital to know this. While the Incarnation is a mystery, certainly there are many unanswered questions about it, there are some things that are absolutely perfectly clear and are absolutely essential to Christ saving us. He did not have a distinct nature that was this sort of unique blending of, of the human and divine. He's, he's not Hercules. He's not half God, half man. He's not Captain America, a man infused with a super serum to make him God-like. the truth of the Incarnation is beyond any pagan god or marvel character. The truth of the Incarnation is that Christ, as God, took on a true human nature without sin while retaining His divine nature. Two natures, one person. To not understand that completely is human, but to deny it is error, and it is to not understand the true Christmas because that's the key to understanding the purpose of the Incarnation. Were that not true, that theology we just reviewed, were that not true, the purpose of the Incarnation could not have been seen through. And the purpose of the Incarnation was to save fallen sinners. And so this is where all this work we've done so far showing that Jesus is uniquely fully God, fully man, two natures, one person, this is where all that kind of heavy lifting comes into play. Because when it comes to salvation, Scripture is clear about a couple things. First, Scripture is clear that salvation will come as a work of God Himself. That God will take the initiative to save fallen man. For example, Isaiah 43.11 I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Scripture makes clear God is the only Savior. Scripture makes clear God will save us. At the exact same time though, Scripture also makes clear salvation will come through a man. For example, back to Genesis 3, referring to the seed of the woman, destroying Satan, or Isaiah 53, talking about a man, a servant being pierced for our transgressions. And so that's when we say, well, how in the world can it be both God and man that saves us until we understand the Incarnation? Scripture was uniquely and unbelievably fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we're saved by God acting, God coming. And in Christ, we're saved by a man as our representative. That is astounding. That's why the incarnation is so significant. Nothing less than our salvation is attached to it. That was the singular purpose of the incarnation. That's why Christ came. It wasn't to do miracles. It wasn't to do good works. It wasn't to offer us a perfect way to live. It was to pay the penalty and die for sinful humans who stand condemned under a death sentence for, all, for our sin and to bring life to all who repent and believe, fulfilling the seemingly contradictory message of Scripture that both God and man would save us. Glory be to God for His glorious works. Which leads to the third aspect of Jesus the Son being man, and those are the results of the incarnation. There are three powerful results listed in these verses, beginning with verse 14. I'll read it again that that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. So the first result of the incarnation was to break the power and fear of death. Although verse 14 says Satan had the power of death, let's make sure we don't misunderstand that. Satan doesn't have the power of death in the sense that he can kill anyone apart from God's permission. If you Remember the book of Job? Satan had to get permission from God to do anything to Job. He could do nothing that God had, had allowed him to do or not to do. God determined our birthday. He's determined our death date. He's determined everything in between before the foundation of the world. But the devil has the power of death in that God declared the wages of sin to be death, a penalty for our sin to be death. And so Satan can rightly demand that penalty be paid. In other words, Satan can you know, sort of chirp in God's ear saying, man, look at that guy. Look at, look at that girl, man. They are horrible sinners. They deserve to die. And you know what? He's right. So death is this dark presence that just hangs over everyone that no one can escape from on their own. Yet Christ, in love, came, was incarnated to to destroy the stranglehold of eternal death and offer eternal life to all who proclaim Him as Lord and Savior. The Gospel is glorious and it's absolutely rooted in Christmas, in the Incarnation. The second result of the Incarnation was to help us in love, as it refers to in verse 16. As we've talked about, angels are, are amazing creatures and they have the luxury of being in the presence of God, yet When Satan and angel rebelled and and many angels followed him, their eternal fate was sealed. As verse 16 says, God doesn't give help to angels. There's no savior for angels, and God is perfectly just and holy in judging them, and it's no different for us. God would be totally justified and holy in not saving anyone, angels or humans, because that's what we chose, is we sinned against him and rebelled against him. That's what we deserve. But he didn't leave it at that. Even while we were enemies of his, he sent his son so that we could be saved. Why? Love. Not that we're so lovable, but that in love, he saved us, even though we don't deserve it. So He created us to be different than angels. He created us in His image to glorify Him and to live in fellowship with Him. And even when we rebelled against Him, seeking His throne, seeking to be God instead of Him, just like Satan did, by the way, God's love for us as people is so great, so merciful, that He would save rebellious creatures like us. The incarnation, the point of which was the cross and the resurrection, was the display of, of God's undeserving love. As the prophet Isaiah says, following chapter 53's description of, of Christ taking on the sins of His people in, in chapter 54, verse 8, God says, In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The third result of the Incarnation, is to aid those who are tempted, as verses 17 and 18 refer to. This is one of the most amazing results of the Incarnation, as we are saved and set free from, from sin and death, and we receive life and fellowship in Christ. We, we still live in this world with the constant temptations of sin. It can be overwhelming at times. Yet God, through the Incarnation, not only gives us power over death in, in saving us, but also in sanctifying us, and making us more like Christ. So as we go through this life, and we're faced with the temptations of the world, we can go to God who comes to the aid of those who are his when we're tempted. And he he doesn't only come to our aid as God who knows all, but as man who knows exactly what we're going through, because he was tempted as a man in his incarnation. So how amazing to know that we have a God that not only saved us and not only brought us into fellowship with Him, but who can actually relate to us intimately, not just as God, but as man, and not only relate to us, but actually be our high priest who makes, as it says, propitiation for us, appeases the wrath of God on our behalf for our sins, so that we can now live in right relationship with Him. There is... There is nothing like that truth in this world. Christmas and the Incarnation truly is beyond description. Yet we have the fourth and final truth in understanding the true Jesus and the true Christmas, which is, Jesus the Son will be glorified as King over all. This harkens back to chapter 1 where Jesus is twice in verse 3 and verse 13 said to sit at the right hand of God, The Father, the right hand being the position of power and honor, as all authority has been given to him as King of Kings. And so at Christmas we celebrate the King's coming as a baby, and as we talked about, that baby grew, he was crucified, he resurrected, he ascended to the Father. But we would be remiss to not remind ourselves of this King's second coming, which we find in places like Zechariah 14, talking about his descending from heaven and setting foot on the Mount of Olives, the very place that he ascended to heaven verse 9 and it says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth as Revelation and other places extrapolate. So just as we can't talk about Christmas without talking about Easter, we also can't talk about Christmas, his first coming, without talking about his second coming as that is the culmination of everything as our king returns once and for all to rule and reign forever and those who are his long for that day. Well, as we, we conclude this morning, considering how the Old Testament prophets point us to the, the true Jesus and the true Christmas, uh, I want to read one of the greatest scenes in, in all of, of Scripture, certainly in the prophetic books. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So Isaiah sees this, this vision of the throne room of God, and as God, he, he sat on his throne and there's this, this special order of angels, the, the seraphim are there, they're, they're above the throne and you notice what they do. They're above the throne at all times, they have six wings, with two they cover their feet, with two they fly, and with two they cover their faces. These are unbelievably powerful creatures, sinless by the way, a special order of angels far beyond us, yet these powerful creatures in the presence of God dare not even look on him as He is frighteningly, perfectly holy. He's so magnificent. He's so perfect. He's so holy that these powerful, sinless creatures are just compelled to yell to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What does this have to do with the true Jesus and the true Christmas? Well, baby Jesus, born to parents in a barn in an out-of-way town called Bethlehem, is that very God who sits on the throne, who holds the universe together, whom the seraphim worship, who one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him to be Lord of all. So as we celebrate Christmas this year and and we see the traditional images and we sing the traditional songs, let's remember the true Christmas marks the arrival of the promised Messiah, God come in the flesh to pay the penalty of our sins, who currently sits on the throne as King of Kings and who one day will return as rightful ruler of this universe and we will live in His presence forever. No Hollywood script could could make that up, yet when we understand that and revel in that truth, it is then
0: that we truly understand what a Merry Christmas is.